Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. I'm excited to announce that we have a new sponsor for the podcast, our friends at Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. We just did our first live recording of the program here in Portland, Oregon, at the very cool Secret Society. The discussion was on Portland's music scene, past, present, and future. We talked to music professionals who've lived here for various lengths of time regarding where we're at now in Portland, and if the diversity and success of the industry that we've seen in the past can and will continue into the future. It's all coming up on The Future of What? Okay, so I'm Portia Sabin. I'm the host of The Future of What and the president of the label Kill Rockstars. And this is a live podcast of The Future of What. Woo! Yes, make noise. Yeah. Yay, so everybody knows that you're really here. Hey. So I'm going to introduce my guests. And I guess I will start on my right with Pat Rice, who is the owner of Old Town Music. After that, we have Terry Courier, owner of Music Millennium, famous record store. Then across the table, Larry Crane, editor of Tape Op Magazine and Jackpot Recording Studios. Andre Middleton, who is with Friends of Noise. And Sierra Hager. And your PR firm is called Public Display PR. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out. So our show tonight, we are talking about Portland and sort of past, present, future, our situation here in Portland and the music scene in particular, because Portland has sort of always been a music town, and it's always been famous for having great bands that come out of Portland, uh, and not only great bands, but also great music businesses. And so what we're interested in tonight is sort of tracing the evolution of that and then seeing where we're going. Are we, you know, are things getting better or worse for us? You know, where are we at and how, and where do we go from here? So I kind of want to start with Terry, because Terry, you've been here for a long time, and you've been in the record selling business for a long time. In I guess I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, Terry is the man who coined the term "Keep Portland Weird." <laughs> Whoa. So uh, he's he's kind of a local legend. I hope he I hope he trademarked that. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so tell us about your experience in Portland with the music scene and just how things have developed over the last several years. You know, Portland has had a great music scene since the early 70s. Up before the early 70s, because of the OLCC, you couldn't have music in bars and people couldn't stand up with drinks. And in the early 70s, that changed. And all the clubs in Portland popped up all over the place. A guy named Andy Gilbert went in there and helped them set up with live music in all these places. And... The local music scene started happening in a very big way in this town. Bands could play in clubs four or five nights a week, every single week of the month, and make a really, really good income off of playing music. As the 70s developed, we had a couple of bands out of Portland that started to hit the national airwaves and hit a button with music fans. and. It really happened with soul music, with bands like Pleasure and Shock 
And it kind of put Portland on the map a little bit, but it was really into the 80s when Portland really became this place where the world started looking around at Portland because we, we ended up with bands like Johnny and the Distractions, New Shoes, the Dan Reed Network, bands like the Crazy Eight started coming up. And they were touring all over the country, and some of them were touring around the world. And Portland became this little hotbed to look at. In fact, a thing happened in the 80s called the Mayor's Ball when Bud Clark came into office. He had a big campaign debt because he was just a layman running for politics. And the musicians in this community got together and had this thing called the Mayor's Ball to pay back his campaign debt. And this ball went on every year for many years after that, even after the campaign debt was done. And it brought attention to Portland and A&R people, different record labels, distributors were all coming to see what was going on in Portland. And from that point on, Portland has really been kind of on the map, but it goes down and it goes up. There will be a scene and it changes. I mean, we had the time when we had, you know, the heat misers and the hazels, the, well, I'm thinking Jeremy Wilson's band. Dharma bums. Dharma bums. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had bands like that that were, were touring around all the clubs around the country and, and getting record contracts with bigger labels like Sub Pop Records and stuff. And then it just moved on to, you know, bands like the Dandy Warhols, the Pink Martinis, and we've got the Slater Kennys. And as all in recent times, as all these bands from other cities and other parts of the world have come through Portland, they see our scene that's happening here because we have a really good music scene in this town. And a lot of those artists are, have moved to Portland because it is such a great music community here to work with. And Nobody's married to any one genre. You'll get people like Portland Cello Quartet, you know, melding their music with different areas of rock, jazz, classical in town. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're really lucky to that extent that we've really got a friendly music community in this town. I, I think it's important to also point out that when I came here, I mean, I've been here only nine years, but when I used to come down here about 15 years ago when I was living up in Olympia... I was really impressed with this as a music town because it seemed like it was so easy for musicians to live here, right? The rents were just right. You could have a room in a house. You could leave it for six months on tour. You could leave your barista job. You know, things were pretty okay. That's changing now. Yeah. As the population has grown in this city, which is one of the largest growing cities in the United States, it has raised the cost of living. And... You know, whether you're buying a house or you're, you're renting a place, everything's going up at a very rapid pace. And it's making it hard for the musicians to live in the community that they want to do their music with. This is almost like in the 80s down in the Pearl District where all the artist lofts and people did all their art down in those places. They pulled up garage doors and there was all these artists working in there. And as they developed the Pearl District, it forced everybody out of that area into all, all kind of other 
areas of the city. So there's not any one place that that community is in. And that's what's going to happen here. I mean, even at Music Millennium with my employees, my biggest fear is that the cost of living goes up, that my employees aren't going to be able to afford to work for me. They're going to have to move out to Gresham, move, move to another city, or even get another job that might pay them more money. Though they would like to work in the store in this business, you know, in order to stay in Portland, they may have to make more money. And Larry, you said that when you started Jackpot, the rent was like 200 bucks a month. Oh, the 500 bucks for the studio space and my personal rent was 200 bucks a month. And I rented, that has uh, yeah. changed a little bit? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm paying about 10 times as much at home and wow. <laughs> to own a house now, right. though it's nicer. God, I'm, you know, the studio rent is like about four times higher, you know, so... Yeah, it would all change. I mean, it's a different economic scale. The advantage in my case is that we did end up in a much nicer uh, space that was custom built for us by my friends that own the building. And so we can offer more services and better quality of work. But, you know, there's no way they could have rented it to me for 500 bucks. <laughs> I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, when Larry talked about the Pearl District, and I remember all my friends um, rehearsed at the Palace. And that was, a, you know, a space that was easily accessible. But it was really, you know, a key part of an ecosystem that supported the artist, whether it was, you know, renting in Goose Hollow or renting, you know, off a division. And then you'd work, you know, not too far away from where you lived. And whether it was, like you said, you could earn a living as a barista or attending bar. And that gave you time to work on your art. Now it's, it's, it's much more difficult. And it's coming from a lot of different directions. It's not just increased rent, but, you know, it's healthcare. It's, you know, it's education. I mean, everything has gone up. And, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, Grant, I've learned a lot from the Future Vote podcast and how artists earn. But, you know, money is still being centralized in, you know, in the core 1%. And it's not being distributed as well as it used to be. So even though you've got people that are, you know, from their own businesses, and it's still just not quite enough. And I think it's important to have discussions like this to figure out how do we push back on that economic model that isn't supporting us and take some of the power back. Well, Andre, while you're speaking about this, why don't you talk about Friends of Noise and what you guys are actually trying to do? Because I think that's a really cool thing at this moment. Um, thank you, Portia. Friends of Noise is a nonprofit that I started with about six other people to actually try and build an all-age music space. When I moved out to Portland, all-age music was going to a bar like Scoochie's. You know, and it was a bar downtown where it was just dance music. But that's somewhere you could go after dark and have fun. And then we'd all end up at B-Saws, a quality pie afterwards. But it's important to realize that, you know, having an all-age space is a part of a healthy music scene because those are the musicians of tomorrow. Those are the engineers of tomorrow. Those are the sound guys. Those are the lighting artists. So we are literally looking for right now a space. We've been open for about a year and a half. In the first year, we just put pop-up concerts all over town. We got a grant from the Multnomah County Cultural Commission, and we leveraged that with borrowing a PA from the folks over at PDX Pop Now or getting lights from Hollywood Lights. And we basically put on shows at different venues around town like a community center in St. John's. Explode Into Colors did a really big fundraiser for us at Mississippi Studios. So the community really, really responded to saying, yes, there's a need there, and how do we actually you know, have an impact on the economy that raises the awareness of the need for nurturing young people to be a part of this ecology and to teach them. And that's another reason why I love the future of what? It's because it teaches young people, hey, don't make the same mistakes that other people made years ago. Have an idea 
of that this is a business, not just a hobby. I mean, I love when you say that, and it's like <laughs> I say it all the time, all the time, all the time. But yeah, so that's what we hope to do. And um, we've got a youth committee, we've got a website, we're on Facebook. But it really is about how do we raise young people's awareness and their parents' awareness to the need of creating a safe alternative space for young people to do what they love to do and share it. Dead End Thanks by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. It's really funny because the first time I came to Portland was before I had anything to do with Kill Rock Stars. It was 1999, and I was in a band called the Hissy Fits, and we were on tour, and we played at the Meow Meow. Oh, yeah. Does anybody remember the Meow Meow? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just left here thinking that Portland was the coolest town in the world with this awesome all ages venue. Like I, it just, I just thought this was, you know, paradise. And then I finally moved here years later and was like, Oh, (laughs) what happened? Well, it's interesting. You know, La Luna and Pine street were really pioneers in creating an all age vibe because you could have, you know, cause you had the bar upstairs and you had the bar in the back. They had great security. I used to be a bouncer there, but it was great to see bands like 30 odd six and pilot. And, you know, we, obviously this is a little later than New Shoes, but it was great to see so many bands because it was really inspirational to see Pond and Hazel and Heatmiser. And they created a space where young people could see, they could see behind the board. You know, there's a great engineer named Cy who literally grew up in Portland playing, you know, working and being behind the scenes at a lot of different venues. And it's just a shame that that's a missing piece of the ecology right now. There was a real large space in that venue for all ages. And then a little a little cafe kind of thing in the back. And it was a really great setup, I thought. I moved, first moved here after it got running. And I thought that was one of the best things because there were those shows, like they were like three bucks or something yeah. for three bands on a Friday. And there were three local bands. Like you'd get like Spinane's, uh, Sprinkler and Pond or something. And it would be a, a cheap show. And, and younger people could go to it. And it would pack that room in pack there. The room. And then the back, you know, me and the other people would be hoisting a beer and having a Rainier or something. Stout, maybe too. 
and it was just a really well-run venue you know that's funny because we were talking the other day about meeting joanna balme and she was working there you know and that's how i met elliot smith so you know all these things happen there one thing that's happened with us because we do a lot of free in-store live music shows mm -hmm. is a lot of national artists are coming through and playing at, at an over 21 club and they're wanting to play in-store live music because they have a big fan base with that under 21 and they want those kids to be able to see them. And these are the, like that whole pop punk emo scene is totally an all ages scene, right? Like they, they make the bulk of their income from kids who are under 21. And so it's fascinating to me that there is even a moment where people are like, why would we want to have an all ages situation? Right? Because I mean, those kids have allowances they have cash in their pockets. Like, why would you not? Like, why do you, what is what is going on that it's been hard? Knowing kind of pretty well how the crystal ballroom world operates is that if you got an all ages side there, you can cordon it off and it, it's perfect. But if you put on a show that like is all ages specific and everybody's in there, you know, on the all ages side, nobody's in the bar, the venue makes a significantly less amount of money. And that's a, that's an important thing to consider for the economics of booking a show. But we have to figure something out, right? We have oh, to yeah. figure something out so that people can have all ages shows that are, I mean, I've watched kids at those shows like, and they did like $4,000 in t-shirts in one show. I've never seen anything like it, but the kids were just like, ah, take my cash, you know? So it's like, clearly these kids have the money and no, they want to have it. Get. But the, the model of having an all age club in the inner city with the cost of, rents and everything they cannot make it selling soft beverages and and things of that nature that it's the alcohol thing that makes a lot of these clubs their money i mean it's not it's not paying the you know it's not making the money from the artists coming through the door so much it is that alcohol sales and in all fairness i think you know even though we're talking about all ages spaces right now there's so many different parts of a music community you know like public relations bands, venues, you know, the people who are, you know, making the CDs, printing t-shirts. And it's interesting to think about how do each of those different aspects of the music community, how are they surviving these days? You know, in spite of where we're at, right, there are still tons of kids in bands. So I think your business is really interesting because your business is not that old, but you don't seem to be lacking for bands to represent. <laughs> Am I correct? Yeah, I, I guess where, where I'd want to start talking about this is just to also like issue a little bit of like a cautionary tale. I, I grew up in Oakland in a very, very healthy all ages music scene, going to shows really like maybe every single night that I possibly could seeing, you know, teenage bands playing a lot of pop punk and emo and stuff like that. And then moved to San Francisco in kind of the mid aughts. And I don't know, it felt to me like the golden age of like San Francisco indie rock. Venues like Bottom of the Hill and the Rickshaw Stop and Cafe de Nord, which closed down, which was an amazing venue. And between 2006, when I moved there, and 2013, when I left, I saw a really healthy music scene completely die, just die, because of the tech boom. I don't know. We, we had it was really, it was really awesome when I moved there, and then and then by the end of it. Because I remember it was a big thing. The OCs left San Francisco and moved to LA and Ty Seagal left and moved to LA. And there was there were like all these articles like, is San Francisco music dead? And the answer is yes. I mean, it is. Like what, what cool is happening in San Francisco right now? Nothing. And when we left, it was for that reason. It's like 
completely unaffordable. So there are no bands and there's no, like there really isn't much of an industry there really right now, at least not on like the indie level. Most of the musicians went to Los Angeles. I, for, I don't know why people do that, but uh, we came to Portland because it's still a place with the music scene to protect. And I think that that's really important. You know, you can still go out any night of the week, see a good band, and you'll be one of like a few thousand people doing that in Portland any given night. So I think that that's a really important point to make that, um, that there really, there really is something here still to hold on to. I think that one of the most important things that you just mentioned is like a lot of musicians were running like Ty and, and John were moving down to LA. And one of the reasons is the rent was cheaper in LA. Yeah. And if there's more entertainment business, which there is in LA and Hollywood, and everywhere, then it makes sense. Like, well, you just move there. And we're seeing that right now with all the comedians yeah. here in town. It's funny. Um, Friends of Noise met with Commissioner Nick Fish a few months ago. And he was key to talk about rent when it comes to local art. Because there are sev- there's been several closures of buildings where artists were able to practice and work and live. Like Town Storage, for example. And like I said, it's an ecosystem. And it, it only takes one part of the ecosystem to kind of get out of whack to throw the rest of it out of whack as well. Yeah, and that one part is rent. Yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah, part. <laughs> rent a big part of it. Exactly. Rent a big part of it. So, Pat, your expertise is in music sales. You know, you sell instruments. And that is kind of, to me, a very telling aspect of the whole ecosystem because, you know, obviously if people aren't buying instruments, they're not playing music. So, what have you seen over the last 20 so years? Well, first off, I'm really glad to hear that there's this interest in all age venues coming up because without a place for younger musicians to play, it's really hard for them to get enthusiastic about pursuing that art. Years ago, in in the 60s and 70s, upstart bands would play at high school dances, and that's where a lot of our current older musicians got their chops, was at playing those high school dances. And for some reason or another, I'm really not sure why, that kind of faded away. Now it's more DJ-type music at these high school dances. So where do these young musicians get a chance to actually perform and hone their craft? And, you know, they can play private parties, but it's not the same as being on a stage with, you know, a whole high school of students out there enjoying the music. So hearing that these clubs are of of interest, I think that's going to be a great thing for these young musicians. And you're right, I don't see as many of the 13, 14, 15-year-old young musicians in my shop like I used to. And I think part of it is because, well, yeah, I can learn how to play guitar, but once I do that, what do I do with it? Well, and and you brought up a good point, which is that people can play private parties or house shows, but a lot of house show venues are being shut down too. So, I mean, I I think that it really is like the responsibility of grownups to step in and be like, where are kids going to play music and and make art, you know? You know, and not to bring up the tragedy of Ghostfire, but I think that's a perfect example of how cities, municipalities, adults, parents need to think about where are safe spaces for our young people and how can we have young people brought into entertainment in a way that is healthy and normal, you know, I mean, just, yes. Just to clarify, you're talking about the ghost ship fire. Right, right the yeah. ghost ship fire that happened down in Oakland. I mean, tragedy, but it speaks to you. People are going to make their art. And if they're going to do it in a basement, they're going to do it in a warehouse, but they're going to make their art. And, you know, I think it is incumbent upon those who are within the industry to actually take a moment to say, hey, what am I doing to maintain a healthy environment? Not just for me and my craft, but for those who are going to come up behind us. On the
That was Nostalgic Hills by Quasi. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it, Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. That is such an interesting point, too, because when I was a kid in New York City, there was a venue called ABC No Rio that I don't know if anyone remembers the super ancient punk venue. Larry always remembers everything that you had to go down a ladder to get into. It was in a basement and you had to climb down a ladder. And I remember going to see the third sex, fine Pacific Northwest band at this show when I was probably 15 or something. And I climbed down this ladder and there were probably a thousand kids packed into this basement where the the ceiling was like I could touch the ceiling with my hand but you're pretty tall yeah but still I mean I think anyone could have touched the ceiling and I was standing there thinking to myself how would I get out of here yeah if this went up you know this is not safe and in the in that in those days New York did have all ages venues you know you could go to CBGB's on Sunday there were all ages venues but so yeah I feel like adults have to like pay attention to some of this stuff I mean, we, we have things that lead towards it, like ethos, where a lot of kids are getting lessons and stuff, which is really cool. And then things that kind of show you brief glimpses of it, like PDX Pop Now, which has a wonderful three-day festival in the summer and has all ages. And they always feature like a couple of really young bands that are like have gone to ethos or something like that. And Rock and Roll Camp for Girls, of course, as well as another one. But I think you're really right. Like there's not a place that gives you like this goal to go be... Like, you know, I used to go play shows at Gilman Street in Berkeley, and I was kind of older than the scene there, but we would headline a show, and these young kids would come from the suburbs and open for us and stuff, and it was really fun. It was like, it's a really good scene, you know? It was all ages, and it was just about the music, and that just gives them something to shoot for, and, and that inspires creativity, and they see things, and they get excited to write music, and it's different. Most of the all-ages clubs I've seen around the country over the years have been in very cheap rent areas and that's what we're missing right now portland is devoid of cheap rent areas within the inner city right now they're turning into condos so speaking about old town music i mean obviously you've been around for quite some time and you've seen the rent change around you how are you holding out when you can also say at the same time that you're not seeing a consumer base that is young enough to really be growing with you well yeah, it has affected us. We were downtown for about 15 years and started off with rent at about $700 a month. Finally, when it hit to $3,300, that was like, okay, it's time to time to move. It just kept going up and up, and the last increase was such a huge increase. It was just ridiculous. So we wound up not moving too far away. We're over on the east side of the river now, and we wound up getting a much larger location for a lot less money. So it happened to, it turned out to be a, a good thing for us, but you're right. The rent downtown just went crazy. No, nobody could keep a shop open down there. And in fact, most of the music stores that were down there have moved out of there now too. So yeah, you have to, you have to adjust with the, the times and the, and the money that it takes to keep a shop open. So moving across the river, we got a much bigger space paying less rent and yeah, it's just a matter of, of, of making those changes. And it's worked out really well for us. It has changed again a little bit more negative because when we moved over there and we had a nice parking lot and street parking was, was readily available. And unfortunately, the condo craze hit over there and we're surrounded by 
eight or nine new condos and street parking is pretty much non-existent. So now we're struggling with a small parking lot and trying to, you know, maintain our customer base too, because they can't find a place to park. They're going to move somewhere else too. We're dealing with that at jackpot too. There's condos going on on like almost every corner around us. And we don't have, we have like about six spots on the street near our studio that we share with a tattoo parlor, a restaurant, you know, and it's like when people come to load in, it's like, Oh, you know, luckily our clients are always kind of predetermined as opposed to dropping in. But it's a little terrifying when I'm going to say like, oh, you can park about four blocks away and load your gear. I mean, that's not going to work. So something that I'm kind of curious about, like Andre's done a really good job leveraging grants and like com- community and like state money or whatever to, to funnel into this. It blows my mind that there aren't like big corporations that are interested in like investing in this kind of thing. You know, beer companies invest in, in music and stuff. Obviously they can't like, they can't do all ages things, but like, like, like you said, you know, kids have money to spend. They want to be involved. Like pop music was made to market to kids. What, why, who is like sleeping on this? You know? Well, you know, what would be great is to start a small group of people that would take that initiative and, and try to go to like the Snitzers or the, the Nikes of the world, even the Paul Allens that have these deep like, pockets. It wouldn't it's, it's take right. much like, money yeah. from them to keep something like that happening in our town in a good way. I'm going to beg to differ a little bit in that I think that we need to re-empower live music in a, in a real in a real way. You know, if people come out and pay for artists and pay for music, they can cover it. You know, I think it's one thing to have maybe institutional support that pays for the banners and pays for the lights. But when people are willing to pay 10 15 $20 to go see a real show and be a part of an environment and make real memories, I think that could be a part of a sustainable solution. I mean, like I said, you know, I want to stop plugging the future of what, but so much of what I've learned from that is realizing how, you know, artists need to be paid and, 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 and we need to value their work. And it just can't be because, you know, Hey, just because, you know, some name brand corporation is sponsoring this, that means I get to go into it and see it for free. You know, we have to be able to value artists and say, hey, I respect what you do, I value what you do, and you're going to help me make a memory that's going to last a lifetime. I don't know if I want Nike as a part of that memory, you know? I mean, so many memories that I have from, you know, La Luna, from Satyricon, from the Blue Gallery, from Starry Night, was because I saw Murphy's Law and I saw somebody having a great time, and that's what resonates with me. So I hope that we can reinvigorate an audience to enjoy this, and that could be a part of the heart of the scene. That would be a better scene. <laughs> but, but it seems like financially there's a disconnect, though, right? I mean, that's what we're all up against right now. There is a group called Music Portland that has gotten together recently in the last six or eight months. I know Andre's been part of that, and I've, I've gone a couple times to meetings, that is trying to tackle this problem at kind of a city level. Mm-hmm. So kind of trying to get into, like Seattle did. Seattle did this successfully So they had the Office of Film and Television, and now it's the Office of Music, Film, and Television. So their ideas are to bring, you know, to bring some city funding to actually get music into the city and to support music in the city. And I think that's a great idea, and I think that we need to, it's multi-pronged, right? Like, we have to do everything that we can do at the same time. But I don't see any reason why we shouldn't try to get the city involved, especially since, I don't know if you guys read this, but a few weeks ago or maybe two months ago, there was this article called, like, is Portlandia to blame for the fate of Portland? <laughs> Did you oh, no. read that? 
Yeah, it was like basically blaming everything that's happening in Portland on the TV show Portlandia. And I don't even if you would like to believe that that's true. I don't know if we can fully lay the blame. It's controversial, right? It's controversial, right? Because it certainly brought more attention to the city, but I don't think it necessarily is to blame for you know, the higher rents. I don't think that, you know, someone saw, someone in Brooklyn saw an episode of Portlandia and was like, that's it, we're moving there. I think it's all subtle indicators that this is a cool town to move to. I mean, I moved here 24 years ago, you know, and it's like I moved here because the clubs were cool and I could go out and see bands every night. It was one of the reasons. So, I mean, I think that the that kind of show, you see creatives in the show, you know, putting a bird on it and all those stupid things. And and I've gotten paid for doing work on that show, which is nice too. Full disclosure. Uh, not very much, let me tell you. Just a couple hours with Fred. But you know, I mean it's those kind of things bring awareness to a town like this, but I think it's good in a way. Because, you know, we my friend in New York always calls me provincial for living here and gives me a hard time and all these things. And I'm like, man, you know, there's more cool music happening here than people can do in Brooklyn these days because we can at least still kind of afford it. And people kind of, they always kind of stake out on their own track in this town, which is something that keeps kind of coming up, you know? I think it's good. I think we got something more here than people think. And Portia, to go back to talking about Portland music, one of the things that we discussed there was how can we empower our government and maybe some local corporations to sponsor to help develop an infrastructure that will support music. And maybe it's, you know, having load-in times in outside of bars and clubs so that people aren't getting tickets creating an infrastructure that actually supports the creation of music because, you know, it has to be part of a cycle, part of an ecology. So while I hope that individuals will go out and support, there is a place definitely for having our government and, you know, even our large corporations that are benefiting from the labor of people and benefiting from this being a creative economy, you know, they're benefiting from that and how are they giving back? Certainly. And I wanted to go back to Pat because my feeling, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you. I feel Ciara, you must find this and, and Larry for sure. And probably you too, Terry. Although record sales are like a slightly different animal, I feel. Because a lot of times you have probably very much repeat customers. Like some, you know, people who just are vinyl like enthusiasts and they're going to come to you no matter what. Yeah, especially right now. But we, we did go through the period of time when downloading was a, a big issue in our industry. And... You know, over a 10-year span, the country went from 7,500 record stores down to 1,800. So yeah, it, did, it did affect. We're in a lucky time because people like vinyl again. So it, it's <laughs> revitalizing the youth culture, especially yeah. to come into the record stores.
That was Joey by the Corin Tucker Band. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. But what I have seen for me with running a label is I get tons of emails from kids who are like, I'm in a band. You want to sign my band? And I'm like, who are you? And have you not been paying attention to the economy? Like, what's wrong with you? But I'm sure that you guys find, I mean, do you find you have kids coming in every day or young people and buying guitars and buying drums and like really interested in, in music? Well, not as much as I'd like. And I, I have seen a decrease actually, unfortunately, as far as the younger people coming in and buying instruments or taking lessons. Like in the last few years? In the last few years, yes. Interesting. And I don't know how to, how to contribute that to, actually. When we were downtown, you could always tell when it was a day off for kids at school because we'd get 20 or 30 young people coming into the shop and sitting down and playing with the instruments. We still get a fair amount of young people, but not the amount that I'd like to see because that's the future of our music is the young kids. And it's alarming that I'm not seeing as many as I think we should be having come through the shop. And I'm not sure if it's because of electronics, playing games at home, and they're not you know, using their talents with a, a guitar or a drum set or whatever instrument they might, might like. But I think it's important that we find a way of getting kids more involved in music and playing music, kind of tapping into their creative juices for that. On top of that, too, I like to say about what we were talking earlier about just the, the music scene in Portland. We do get so many talented musicians come through the shop. It's amazing how many people during a daytime, they'll take a guitar into one of our practice spaces or take a pedal in, and it's like, wow, that guy is really good, or that, that gal is, and she's amazing on that guitar. And you start talking to them, and some of them aren't in bands, some are in bands, but you're right about the economics of the music scene because these people spend you know, 10, 15 years on their craft and they get really, really good, but then they go to um, you know, a venue in a band situation and they get $50 for playing that night. You know, it's, musicians are one of the least paid professionals out there, I think, and it's, that might be part of the thing with young people too. It's like, well, why should I put all this time into it if all I'm going to get out of it, besides the enjoyment of playing, I'm not going to be able to make an occupation out of it because there's just not the money out there to be made. So finding a way for you know, sponsors or you know, government involvement or something to kind of prime the pump to get things going. And on top of that, you know, just creating a music scene in Portland geared towards all this new population moving in. We do have a, a huge population base coming in here now. And if we can get all those people to get out there and listen to music, get into clubs, if, if it's $5 at the door, $10 at the door, if, we're, if we've gotten all these condos filled up with people, let's get them out there and get them into clubs and you know, paying at the door so that the musicians working the stage can get a much you know, bigger monetary value out of it when they play, plus they got a bigger crowd to play for too. It kind of works on, on the recording studio end too. I mean, Sierra is one of the artists that moved up here and then came and made a record at Jackpot. So, you know, in a way, it's like if people are moving here and they're aware, a lot of times they're aware of Jackpot's history and they're aware of Music Millennium's history and Kill Rockstars and all these things. It's a, they, they see us as legacy things that are good and, and want to interface with us. And, and I've had numbers of bands, I feel like, that are tr- recent transplants or, you know, transplants over the last two decades that want to come and work at this space where such artists as Elliot Smith had worked, right? So it, it really does kind of work in a, on a... There's such a teeter-totter effect with this thing. Is 
you know. That brings up a good point when you think about how, you know, back in the day, and back in the days, you know, the mid-90s, how there was a definite circuit of clubs in town that were in a very symbiotic relationship. You know, you might play Key Largo one year, and then you might grow and you might play Pine Street or La Luna the next, or you had your go-to spots. You know, Key Largo was a spot. How, as Portland is expanding and growing, how can we try to export that to where it's more almost like a neighborhood thing? You know, I mean, right now there are such distinct neighborhoods now. There are young people, like part of the resistance crew out of St. John's, where they cut their teeth playing house parties and venues in St. John's. And now you've got, you know, young people growing up in Lentz and, and in the Woodstock area where they're playing clubs out there. How do we get them part of an ecosystem where kids that are in St. John's who might not go to Lentz can now see music from Lentz because people are willing to cross-populate different communities? Start trading them like in uh, sports. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sierra, tell me about how you, I mean, because I feel like you are just not having a shortage of bands to work with. I think that's so fascinating to me. It's like, you know, the, regardless of anything else, that there's just bands out there. Yeah, we have active bands right now in like Lexington and Dayton and Olympia and Sacramento, San Luis Obispo. It's not like they're part of healthy scenes. You know, what they're doing is, is like basically like touring the nearby bigger markets and stuff like that, which is obviously what they have to do. But like, it's definitely interesting to note that a lot, a lot of our work comes from small towns. Right. Well, I think we're seeing a movement right now away from, I think like the internet did this weird thing where it suddenly, like when the internet started, everybody thought like, oh, we're going to have like this weird global economy of music, right? Like everybody's going to be able to get everything on the internet. And that did happen for like five seconds. And then everyone was like, wait a second, I'm lost. I'm just like a fish in the ocean. Like I'm a, a pebble in the sea in the internet. And, and then everyone kind of came back and like pulled it back in. And now we have these tertiary markets where people are really creating scenes. And I feel like it's almost the 90s all over again. You know, it's like when I was in bands, we had scenes, little scenes, people from, you know, it's like we were the weird pop punk kids from Lower East Side of Manhattan, right? And it was great. We loved it. But nobody knew of us outside of, you know, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. But we would go to different scenes and everybody would be like, oh, we love you. And then eventually everybody knew each other that way from touring. And then the internet was supposed to fix that, right? It was supposed to make it so everybody could know each other all the time. But really what happened was it just became a huge mess and then everyone retreated to their little scenes. And that's why I think it's actually really interesting that we have little scenes springing up in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. Because people have been like, this is how much I can bite off and chew, right? Like, this is what I can handle right yeah. now is this. Well, and that's kind of awesome. It, I mean, a small band who's like, who's playing, you know, maybe once a month or whatever, if they're not, I don't know. I've, obviously the goal is to like grow your project for a lot of people, but like, I mean, a small town can really sustain a small band for, in a lot of ways, you know? My, my niece is living in Flagstaff. She's 21 and she goes to house parties and sees like these punk metal bands all the time and hangs out with this whole scene of, of that. And I was like, man, that's, a, that's exactly what we used to do, you know? a couple of years ago when I was younger. And, you know, and I'm really, I'm glad to see that because to think that everything's going to happen through the internet is, is sort of fallacious, I, I would imagine. And the internet's a good place to, to help move promotion along or to make people aware of things when they're aware of you already. But it's not a good place to start, if that makes any sense. It's interesting. I was on a road trip this weekend and I ended up playing some music from my friend who was with me from a band called Slack. Anybody remember Slack? This was like an 80s band of Reedies, and they had some great beats, and it was still poignant today. And the reason why I bring that up in this context is that, you know, no matter where you are, if you're making good music, you're making good music. 
And I think that one thing the internet has done is put so many tools at our fingertips that people think, wow, I can make a, I'm going to totally quote Portia again. I made a couple of songs in my bedroom and now I'm ready to go on tour, you know? And I think having touring experience or experience playing at, like you said, at the high school gym or playing at a local space outside, that's the kind of thing that builds the ecology, that builds the chops, that builds the, the, you know, the muscle memory of what it's like to do this. And it's hard to do that on a computer. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard to do that on a computer. So I was really surprised that my buddy liked Slack, even though it was literally 20 years ago, if not more, than Slack played. And they've gone the way of the dodo years ago, but the music was so hot even then that it's still good now. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, the scene can only be as strong as the music that is being made in it. And how do we encourage that through education, through mentorship, through sharing? You know, in some ways, you know, whatever we're lacking on the monetary side, how do we utilize our human capital to develop it nonetheless? You think we could work with the city and the school district and utilize some of the schools for, for that in the evening time on the weekend? When I grew up back in the, the late 60s, early 70s and stuff, I mean, on a regular basis, we had high school bands playing in the gymnasium, had dances and the, the whole works, and there was an admission, and there was a whole system together for these bands to be able to portray their music. I don't know about that, but I will give a shout out to Portland Parks Recreation. They have a variety of stages set up in parks all throughout the summer. Director's Park, Holiday Park, um, they've got a series of concerts called Summer Free For Alls. And I know the deadline's coming up, and I don't know when this is gonna, people are gonna hear this, but they are trying to offer, they're paying bands, you know, it's like, you know, $200 for a single player, $600 for a trio, but they're paying bands to play. Granted, you know, the bands are just making that and they have to often have to bring their own equipment as far as PAs and speakers and the like. But there, uh, there should be ways. And I, and, I, and I think Music Portland is one way if they're trying to figure how do we lobby our city to provide us with the infrastructure. And maybe that could be a solution. Hopefully, maybe another solution could be, you know, how do we get some of the clubs to say, hey, let's try and have, you know, a consistent all-age night around town so that young people can know that they can go see music all over town. So that might be another idea as well. I always figured if the, if the government set up a system where if you could prove you made half your income from, from music or playing music or anything, you would get like a tax break and free health care, that, that would just like help out right away. And then you would, then the money that's like gray area money that's never really declared would start getting declared. And then the IRS would be happy too, right? <laughs> Larry for president. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> Anyone would be better. And on that note, <laughs> thank you so much to all my guests, Sierra and Andre and Larry and Terry and Pat. And I'm Portia, and this has been The Future of What. Thanks for coming out, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to announce that Kill Rockstars has teamed up with Sean Cannon of The Guest List to produce Say Yes, an Elliot Smith podcast. This podcast will air every Friday leading up to the release of our 20th anniversary either-or extended edition album on March 10th. Right now, check out part of Sean's interview with Jack Black and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Okay, tell me your name and what do you do? Elliot. 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 Steve. Elliot. Smith. I play music. acoustic guitar work is just uh, remarkable and his 
voice is so vulnerable and uh, trembling almost with emotion, and and he doubles it up. Not many people can pull that off, but he's got this this style that that he used on most of his albums when he's uh, in the recording studio. He'd double up his vocals, and it, it created this kind of cool haunt, haunting quality. I'm Sean Cannon from Louisville Public Media and the guest list at Say Yes, an Elliott Smith podcast. And today we'll be going uh, in a few different directions, but we're starting out with that dude right there. Oh, and, and just in case you don't recognize his voice. I'm Jack Black. And while it's completely true uh, that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, I'd still totally understand if you were surprised by the fact that actor and comedian Jack Black isn't just a fan of Elliot Smith, but uh, is a devotee. And it just so happens that Jack fell in love with Elliot's music after hearing his self-titled album, but, as with many folks, his obsession wasn't fully consummated until he saw Elliot live for the first time. It was at Largo, on back when it, there was this little club owned by this Irish dude, Flanny, Mark Flanagan, and a legendary music comedy club uh, on uh, Fairfax in Los Angeles. And, um, and he played there a few times and, uh, you could hear a pin drop. It was just, uh, it was quite an experience. And, um, everybody in, in the room knew that something special was happening up on that stage. And a lot of those songs I, I had never heard before, and they were just as powerful. You know, usually you don't, respond to a song until the second or third time you hear it till your brain gets accustomed to the to the jam but these songs were cutting right through all of that and um i was floored and uh i think actually i did talk to him for a second afterwards but nothing really uh it was just a nervous guy bumbling about what a genius he was but the next time they met things were a little different Later on, I saw him the first time I was on Conan O'Brien's show. We are back. My next guest is the lead singer of what he calls the greatest band on earth, Tenacious D. They've earned that title, I think. He also stars in the new film, High Fidelity. And I, and I did this thing. It was, remember when Andy Richter, Conan O'Brien's sidekick, was leaving the Conan O'Brien show the first time, back when he was on at midnight? Because he was going to do a movie or something else. He was going to, you know, do his own thing for a while. What's the problem? Well, the word on the street is that Andy's bailing on the show. Is that true? He's taking off. Because yeah. if he is, the yeah. thing is? Yeah. And uh, I thought it would be funny, because they were in the middle of this sort of countdown to saying goodbye to Andy Richter. If I proposed upgrade time to be upgrade time <laughs> the replacement for Andy Richter. I want you to see some of my techniques, my sidekick wait, wait, are, you, are you pitching yourself? I made a video as the tape. replacement for yes, Andy. Yes, I am. I wrote this song, uh, the sidekick, as sort of an audition piece. You made an audition tape. Yeah. You've gone to a lot of trouble, haven't you? And we recorded a little music video. I really went all out because I had not been on talk shows before, and I really wanted to kick ass. And uh, it was a funny bit. Let's see. I want to see the Jack Black sidekick audition tape. Can we roll this, please? Uh, okay. Here's me listening. Notice how interested I am. Really? Right. Now watch what happens when the guest makes a wise crack. Oh, my God. That is the funniest joke. <laughs> 
Now watch what I do when Conan tops the guest's wise apple. And Elliot Smith was the musical guest that, that night. Please welcome back to the show, Elliot Smith. And um, he came out and did a song from, from uh, Figure Eight. And then we sat together on the couch and he told me that my bit was funny and I just melted because I was like, oh, dude, you have no idea. When you get a compliment from someone that you worship, it's like, it's like manna from heaven. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Portland bands Horse Feathers, Quasi, and the Corin Tucker Band. And of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 